Like, is this the same man we've been reading about? It is, it is power corrupting him. And then we have this moment where, where Nathan comes to David and tells him a story about an abuse of power. And David gets angry at the, the power holder abusing the one without it. And then we see actually David, I mean, Nathan says, you're the man, uh, but not in a good way. Welcome to episode 18 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, where we go through the next week's readings and our Read the Whole Bible in a Year plan and talk about questions or puzzles and just things to look out for in the upcoming passages. For next week, you'll be reading part of 2 Samuel 6 through 2 Samuel 18. You'll be reading 1 Chronicles 6 and chapters 15 to 20, as well as Psalm 3 and 63. And this series of readings is almost entirely about David's reign as king after Saul. So Saul is gone. David is settling into being king. And it begins with David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. And of course, that goes badly at first because David disobeys in what the law says is the way that the ark is supposed to be returned or traveled with. And then tragedy strikes and David retreats and tries to figure out what went wrong. He repents of his mistake and does it correctly and joyfully brings the ark into Jerusalem. There is tremendous worship that happens around it, both David's exuberance that's recorded as well as the prayers that are given um, for the worship in around the ark. It's an incredible series of passages. Then we hear more about David. We hear about his desire to build a temple and Nathan originally saying yes, but then going on to say, actually, Yahweh says you're not the man to do that. David has a lot of military successes. He, we see David being a really good guy for the first part of our readings. Um, he finds Saul's grandson and fellowships with him and takes care of him. Um, but then we get the story of David and Bathsheba, which aside from David and Goliath may be the most famous David story. And we see the darker side of David, the corruptible side of David, the part that does not do well with women. And it does seem like that is a theme through David's time. After he commits adultery with Bathsheba and has her husband killed, he repents, genuinely repents and is forgiven. But then we get shortly thereafter a story where one of his sons seems to behave in a similar way, um, just in a dis- with a disregard towards women. And then that causes two of his sons to fight and one of his sons kills the other. Absalom then ends up taking over or chasing David out of his throne, out of Jerusalem. There's conflict. Absalom, uh, David's son, is killed, which is tragic for David. There is all of this happening in the context of, especially in Samuel, we're seeing a very human picture of David. We're not getting the, the rosy picture we get in Chronicles, where David isn't perfect, but it really focuses on his successes. In Samuel, we really see a human person here who has tremendously good qualities and has a sincere heart for Yahweh and at the same time is corruptible. And we see some pretty tragic uses of power and abuses of power um, from David. How do you think uh, the story of David and and kind of just our, our engagement with it sits with kind of our current struggle, you know, in terms of like 
canceling people and once they've done something they're kind of written off in public life for maybe not the rest of their careers but certainly for a long time like david david qualifies for cancellation yes he does (laughs) well i i don't want to answer that question without talking about what happens before it and you weren't trying to avoid that but david is i mean i think we would call him today a rapist i mean Mm. when the king tells you to come to him and intends to sleep with you. I'm not sure that Bathsheba thought she had a choice. Mm-hmm. And so David's, I mean, it's an abuse of power. And then we see it and it just it shocks you. It makes you wonder who this man is because he calls her husband back from battle, hoping that if, uh, if he can get her husband to sleep with her, the baby, the possible baby would be believed to be just his, but right. he's honorable. And David is so frustrated by his honor, he has him killed. Which, again, you're like, is this the same man we've been mm-hmm. reading about? It is It is power corrupting him. And then we have this moment where, where Nathan comes to David and tells him a story about an abuse of power. And David gets angry at the, the power holder abusing the one without it. Mm-hmm. And then we see, actually, David, I mean, Nathan says, you're the man, uh, but not in a good way. Right. And we see genuine repentance. And so... When it comes to the the question that's happening in our culture right now, I think how men in power abuse that power is a relevant topic. But also, is there a forgiveness for a rapist and a murderer? Because that's, that's what David is. Mm-hmm. And when we see people who are rapists and murderers on TV or in the news, we are not usually thinking, now there's a man after God's own heart. Right. But scripture really shows us a scandal with grace and forgiveness. And it's true that those things are scandalous because most of us will never sin in a way that's nearly as harmful as David's sin. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just never will. I will probably never get anyone killed and I will certainly not ever assault a woman. But the, the inclination that we have to say that those are things that cannot be forgiven does not go with scripture. We see sincere repentance on David's part and we see some, some judgment from Yahweh. There's, there's a penalty, but then he's restored. And I think that is uncomfortable when people read this story today. They don't think David is a good guy anymore after they read this passage. And it does seem like Yahweh thinks he's as good as he was beforehand afterwards well and i i think that that cuts into you know this idea of like well but nobody is good like i understand what you're saying in terms of david being a man after god's Mm -hmm. own heart and all of that but like none of them are good he was never good to begin with you know that's the not not absolutely good yeah yeah you know that's the and, and, and honestly i think that's part of the difficulty that we are grappling with culturally right now is the reality that no one is good. That doesn't mean that we're all monsters. And you see that sometimes. You push the narrative that all members of a certain category or group are yeah. evil or whatever. Liars, yada, yada, yada. And I think that's that's uh, demonstrably false <laughs> for whoever you know that group is that you're trying to define that way. But that the truth is, is that all of us are sinful. I mean, that's the, that's the word for it, right? All of us have potential, you know, for good and for evil, but it makes no sense to operate as if 
we won't do evil things, you know? Yeah. And, I, and I think that, and we don't need to talk much more about this, but just that the, the cultural moment that we're in, I think that there is a lot of righteousness in the course corrections that have been made. Yes. That there have been a lot of structures and things that have behaved as if pastors or bosses or generals or presidents or whatever will just do the right thing because they're good people, you know, and they're, they sometimes, maybe even most of the time, will, but they often won't because nobody is. <laughs> and it's been very difficult to hold someone accountable. Um, yeah. Once, the, and we still see that today. I mean, a politician commits crimes, and there's no certainty at all that that politician right. will pay a penalty for it, like you or I would if right. we committed those right. crimes or the same crime. Yeah. Yeah, and the we see in David. I mean, he got away with it. There was nobody after David. Like there there was no one was coming for his head. There was no family of Uriah that was gunning for him to be killed. Yahweh has to punish him because Yahweh is the only one who can because he's king. Right. And so we see this corruption that can come from power and authority. Um, when And I think that's true absolutely every bit today as much as it was then. We even see that with pastors a lot of the time. Pastoral ministry. Um, there can be this they're above questioning idea, mm-hmm. and that's not good or healthy. Right. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention is in the middle of, of a terrible um, time, in part because they've allowed um, pastoral authority to become, I think, too unchecked mm-hmm. and allowed accusations of um, of assault, of abuse, all those things to go uninvestigated and unpunished. Um, and unheard because there was no good way to do it. And it was, it was a painful process. One of the things I think David and Bathsheba shows us, and one of the things we're learning in our cultural moment right now, is that it is actually better if no one's above the law. And while we all think we mean that, we do it until it's our hero in question. And right. then we don't mean it anymore. Right. And that a lot of the foundation, philosophical foundations, for the idea that nobody is above the law are drawn from scripture. Yes. <laughs> like are drawn from these sorts of stories, you know, that, yeah. that, uh, there is no human authority or institution that it ought to be, uh, what's the word? Un, uh, oh gosh, unaccountable, unaccountable. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say unconsequence. I was like, that's, that's not a word. <laughs> Do you see, like, it, it, there seems to be a resonance, you know, and you said like this, so David's forgiven David, and I'm not necessarily disputing that, but I mean, his, the child dies and then you can definitely see his violation of Bathsheba like pushes over a domino that oh, yeah. then drives the sequence of events that go through, you know, really all the way through the the whole section of 1 Samuel. Well, yeah. So, I mean. You know, Absalom doesn't have a revolution because David did that to Bathsheba. But it seems like, you know, I think it's no accident that the, the Ammon and Amnon and Tamar story comes Basically, right immediately after, you know, Amnon. And, and why David, does Amnon think that sort of behavior is acceptable? Yes. You know, uh, David, and David is silent him. and does nothing, you know, in, in that situation to Amnon. You're really on Absalom's side for the first half of his oh, story yeah. or so. Yeah. I mean, he kills his brother and that's that's wrong, right? He That is an incorrect or a bad right. attempt at justice. Right. Genesis 34 again. Right. But it was... I mean, his sister had been raped in by fact, her brother. In fact, it's almost exactly Genesis 34 I mean, again, the name and the, everything. Yeah. <laughs> the patriarch yeah. did nothing, yeah. and uh, the brother kills the the 
perpetrator. Yeah, absolutely. Huh. Yeah. And I think we're supposed to, I think, I mean, I think the name Tamar is supposed to take us back to, to Genesis yeah. as well. Yeah. And I think that we, we are supposed to see here or wonder where David is. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he's silent and that silence is sin. It does not come out and say that that silence is sin, but that silence I think is him. My gut tells me David thinks I'm no better than Amnon. Who am I to, um, to criticize him? He's just doing like his father did. Um, that doesn't make that okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the part of the Absalom, the kind of the, the wrap up of Absalom's revolution and David's grieving for him, I mean, shows us that, I mean, understandably, he has a soft spot for his own children, you know, and, and will uh, let them get away with murder. <clears throat> yeah. Well, but the he, others around, you know, Joab and everything else are yeah. frustrated. Let him just, you know, continue well, to do that. And I, I, it's interesting reading commentators. They're split with David at the end of this story. Is David good for his mourning and gentleness towards Absalom, or is he is he wrong still, or mm-hmm. is um, is Joab right, or is David right? Mm-hmm. And I really am with David on the. I mean, his humility shines through. We do see a man who has the his a character that's godly. Not all the time, but the his son comes after him and he vacates the throne. In ancient history, that's almost unheard of. You die on that throne defending it. David gives it up to, to avoid battle in the streets of Jerusalem. And then um, when it's time to reclaim it, he wants his son who has rebelled against him, who has turned his people against him, who has taken his allies and made them enemies he still wants his son safe. Um, and I think that is a, I think that is a picture of the kind of fatherly love that God shows to us. I think with that whole, the whole kind of David and Bathsheba through Absalom arc, I think you can see a lot of resonance with Genesis as well. Just that David, I mean, it's the same pattern that David saw that Bathsheba was good and or beautiful Tove. And then he took her and then he, I mean, he didn't eat her, but he used her. You know, I mean, it's the same, you know, and it's saw, right after, took, ate. It's you know, right after somebody Eve, says the that The same thing that un- Eve does it, the same thing that the sons of God did, the same thing that Abraham and Sarah did with, with uh, Hagar. And it's right after somebody says to David, you are unparalleled in your ability to determine right from <laughs> good wrong. Good from evil. And yeah. Good from yeah. evil. Which uh, puts the lie to that. But even then, it's like, so you have that. And then you have Cain and Abel again with Absalom and Amnon. And then you have the exile. I mean, David leaves. David is exiled, you know, self-exiled, but exiled nonetheless. I mean, he he flees Jerusalem to the east. And um, so I just, reading through this again, I just kind of picked up on all those those resonances. In a, in a, I just hadn't really noticed before. I was like, yeah, that is that is what's happening. Yes, it yeah, is. All over again. <laughs> well, and I also want to, about David and Bathsheba, I want to say something. I've heard it turned on Bathsheba before. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, she was like seducing. That she was, why would she yeah. be on her roof at yeah, that time? Yeah. That's literally what they were supposed to yeah, be doing. That's what everybody did. I mean, yeah. that's, the the person who's not where they're supposed to be is David because he's not with his soldiers. Right. He's supposed to be with the troops. In fact, it starts by saying, at the time of the year when kings went out to war, David's home and he sees Bathsheba bathing. He's the one who's not where he's supposed to be. There's no blame. This story puts no responsibility on Bathsheba at mm-hmm. all. None. 
Again, mm-hmm. because there's no reason for us to think she thought she could tell the king no. Right. Well, backing up a little bit and still kind of keeping with David and women. <laughs> so, like, when they bring the ark into Jerusalem, <laughs> David is celebrating. And I want you to maybe just illuminate a little bit for us. Like, what was David doing? Why did that upset uh, Michal? Yeah. I don't know how you say her name. Uh, and then the last we hear of her is that she was childless for the rest of her life. And Oof. I wanted your opinion on like was that a punishment from the lord or is that just a reflection of the fact that she despised david and so they never slept with each other again (laughs) so three Hmm. questions what was david doing why did it upset mccall and yeah tell us about the baroness So, (laughs) so what was david doing david was um he'd figured out what he had done wrong the first time and repented and was bringing the ark back correctly and he's celebrating and so he's not wearing his normal kingly garments. Uh, kings and Chronicles seem to present slightly different pictures that are probably not actually different. Um, priests would some, or, or people doing priestly duties would sometimes wear a very simple garment. Um, this is not the kind of thing that a king would wear. Mm-hmm. And so David is wearing something like that and dancing in celebration before the Lord. I'm trying to remember which one's which, but one of them seems to indicate that she's upset about his wardrobe. The other one seems to indicate that she's upset about his dancing. Um, but dancing was a, a thing that was connected to worship uh, in the ancient world. That wasn't unheard of. And what my gut tells me is that she was probably a little bothered by both. He, She's married a king. Like, she's the queen. The king should be kingly. Mm-hmm. And when he lowers himself... Um, that lowers his family. That lowers the the perspective on the king. A woman who cares about position and power and propriety is bothered by that. And it's not it's not wrong to be concerned with properness and propriety. But the the issue is that that gets let go by David in the the worship of Yahweh. When he comes for Yahweh, he has no airs to put on. He's mm-hmm. genuine in himself, and it's impressive to the people, mm-hmm. you know and um, but his wife is is bothered. So what is she bothered by? I think she's bothered because he's wearing unkingly garments, um, very simple garments. And I think she's bothered because he's too exuberant in his dancing. Now let's talk about the barrenness. I don't know if we're supposed... I mean, David's about to get a new wife. And so there's some question about does... I mean, he's got three at this point, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And Bathsheba is number four. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes sense. For, for them to never be together again. Um, he would, might have been so disgusted or bothered. It does not seem like she really had a lot of warm fuzzies towards David in the first place. In fact, I mean, in that case, there might have been no desire on her part for intimacy with the king. Or, or, or it could be Yahweh saying the line of Saul needs to end. Hmm. And I think that that's, that's a possibility here too. Hmm. I don't know. But we are, we are not to see her in a positive light. Like that... That little note at the end, she was barren, is a judgment. The question I think we have to, to ask is, what's the judgment for? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's this this disdain of her husband because of his willing his exuberance in worship. Mm-hmm. Husbands, wives, do not criticize your spouse's passion for Yahweh. So in the next chapter, and you touched on this in the summary, that David is like, look, I built a palace, but Yahweh is still dwelling in a tent. Uh, you know, 
a lot a lot going on there, but I think the idea being like we're settled, like we're in the land, we're building permanent houses, so why would Yahweh still be kind of in wilderness mode? Um, and he is told not to. Uh, I mean, Nathan says, yeah, let's do it. But then the word of the Lord comes to Nathan and says no. But then the Lord strikes a covenant with David, and I wanted your insight on, like, is this a new covenant, or is this like a addendum to the covenant with the nation and then what is the covenant with david so i do not think that this is an addendum to the covenant with israel i think that this is a promise to david um and i think that what we have here is a a bit of a messianic promise that it will always be there will always be a descendant of david on the throne i think this is because this is both david's being told no to building Yahweh's temple. And Yahweh's wanting to make sure that David knows, like, I'm not saying no because I'm angry with you. I'm saying no because your hands have blood on them. And the the person who builds my temple should not be a man who's killed. And I think that's a powerful sentiment. I mean, especially since they're going to be doing sacrifices at mm-hmm. the temple. Like, I think, I think Yahweh is saying something profound and deep about the importance of human life mm. um, there that I think is, is worth hearing. But... David is being given instead this promise that that when you die, our connection isn't over. Um, it is an honor to you because of how you've lived. I'm going to always make sure that there's a uh, descendant of yours on the throne. And that ends up being Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's who fulfills that promise. And that's amazing. Mm-hmm. What an honor. Mm-hmm. And Jesus's like connection to David is important through the, through the Gospels. And it's important as we think about the story of scripture, because David is the picture of a good king. He's not a perfect king, but he's a good king. And Jesus is the perfected version of that. Yeah. Do you have any more to add there? And then David prays after all this, his prayer yeah. of gratitude. And just one part of it I wanted to, to uh, kind of comment on. He, so towards the beginning, verse 22 Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And I just wanted to comment or just kind of explore for a minute or just acknowledge, you know, that, that what, but what David is acknowledging in the prayer is the uniqueness of what is happening with Israel kind of on the world stage. You know, and of course, you know, every people, that's just part of what it, is you know the stories they tell is usually well we're special because of this and certainly that's part of what's happening here but i think that they're it just it's worth sitting and reflecting for a minute on how it really is true for israel you know (laughs) kind of in a cosmic way Uh that there really is something uh special or something whatever word you want to use maybe other than special happening and so i just wanted you to comment on that yeah, well, we've, I mean, we talked about remembering quite a bit recently with, with our sex, our renewal theme of prayer. And I think that, I mean, that's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. And we see David doing it pretty well here. He's remembering what Yahweh has done. And that's a, that's a story that you and I are still in. Mm-hmm. It's different, 
we're at a different chapter than David was. Um, but that story of a God who has called out a people and is using those people as the vehicle through which to reach and redeem the world is still the same story that we're part of. And I think that's amazing. Um, we can we can pray almost the same prayer uh, David did and have it be every bit as true for us as it is for him. Uh, and that's who our God is. He's the God who, he doesn't leave those in need without help. Hmm. He comes to them. He's the God who comes to help and redeem and rescue and save. But he doesn't just do it through mighty acts of, of miracles. He did that in Egypt, of course. But even there, he worked through. Um, and that's what he wants to do. We're his people he wants to work through. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think with that, too, just reflecting, you know, we've, you know, we've touched on this in various ways as we've gone through of just the the pronounced difference. You know, in many ways, Israel was very similar to its neighbors, you know, in, in a lot of different ways. But then there are other ways, I would say, maybe in the most important ways where Israel was very different and and truly unique in the ancient world. You know, some of the ideas are, are we feel like are are baked in because we've inherited, you know, our, our civilization, Western civilization has inherited so much from, from the Israelite story. You know, you're talking about the dignity of, of people and limited government and, you know, and all these things. It's like, well, yeah, that all, fl- fl- not just from the Bible. I mean, we're pulling it from other sources too, but the Bible's obviously had a huge influence on us. And so... I think it's always worth when we're able to wind the clock back and be like, it didn't have to go this way. And most peoples didn't think in these ways. Yeah. And the Bible, not just the Bible, but but the Lord's actions that are recorded in the Bible are what has made the difference, you know, mm-hmm. over time. You know, so I just think in one of the ways I think that Israel really was unique, and this is what's being reflected in David's prayer, is that they believe that their God had acted like in history. Yes. Whereas most other people, the myths and stories they told, they all occurred way at the beginning. And, and, you know, Israel had its creation stories too, you know, or in like a time before time, you know, the golden age, the age of heroes, the whatever, you know, like, but it's all distant, you know, or like the Babylonian stories, like all those myths happened way at the beginning when Marduk or whoever kind of set up the world as it's supposed to be. And then ever since has done nothing. <laughs> I shouldn't say has done nothing, but has just maintained the cycles of the world, you know. And that is the, you know, for the pagan peoples around them, what sacrifices were, for the most part, were maintaining sort of the system of the world. You know, it's like you wanted rain on time, you gave sacrifices, you wanted, you know, whatever, your livestock to, to have healthy calves, you know, you gave sacrifices. I think a little bit of that is in the is in the Israelite sacrifices. Um, I mean, they you know their festivals and things were yeah, timed with the harvests, and you know, so I mean, there there was a little bit of that, and certainly maintaining kind of the Eden, you know, their little sort of simulated Eden with the tabernacle and everything. But I think that it was just so much more an expression of like what Yahweh has done in history, you know, and then what He continues to do. Like their relationship yeah. with Him was not just kind of greasing the gears of the universal system like the other sacrifices were like it was it was it was relational in a way that again we're all used to the idea of like having a relationship with god even non-religious people whereas in the ancient world that was just not a thing it just was not a thing except in israel well and even their their name 
had to do with this wrestling with God mm-hmm. and the 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 idea that he's active among them right. currently and always. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Redemption is ongoing. Mm-hmm. So jumping ahead, we I mean we we covered or talked about the the uh, assault with Bathsheba and everything. I think a lot. And if people have questions, we could talk we could talk more about it. But just so zeroing in on an Absalom name means my father is peace. Does that sound right? Uh, shalom. Av Shalom. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's the deal with Absalom's hair? Because it's mentioned multiple times, and it's what winds up killing him. Yeah. So tell us about Absalom's hair. I I have to be honest with you. I noticed that this time. Like I'm sure that I've had that. Like I don't know that moment before, of like I wonder what's going on with Absalom's hair. But it 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 struck me this time, and so I don't know if we're supposed to think of Samson. Uh, if we're supposed to connect Absalom to Sam- to Samson, that feels like an easy connection. Um, but he's he's good looking. He's handsome. He's a he's a good looking man. <laughs> and there's the there's some vanity attached, I think, to the long hair that he has. Um, and that vanity ends up being what kills him. And so. I when a person dies, that's five pounds of hair. By the way, that's the. I mean, that's a lot that's of hair. The measurement: five pounds of hair cut off his head. That's a lot of hair. Whenever he how how often was it cut? Every year, he grew five pounds of hair <laughs> each year. He was weird. That's uh that's uncommon. That is a well, and so just so what what are, what are they telling us? Like, what is the point? <laughs> well, whenever someone dies in in the Bible, if they die in an unusual fashion. If they have a story, a lot of the times the death is telling you how to interpret the story. And I think that we can read Absalom's story as one of vanity. Mm. Um, even his vengeance against his brother on behalf of his sister. Um, it was not restorative justice in any way. Um, he, was, he was taking revenge. In part, it, it can be read as though he had been slighted mm-hmm. by this act. And then he plots against his father because his father has all this attention and love for him. Um, he plots to steal it. He does steal it. His father runs away. And then Absalom faces him in battle. Utterly absurd that he would assume that he could beat David. Um, not They don't fight one-on-one. But sure. the, I mean, David David doesn't know how to it's lose David. a battle. Yeah. I mean, he wins every battle. I think that's true. He wins every battle he's part of. I think that's true. A man who lived a career in combat literally never lose being part of a losing battle. I just realized that now that must have been that must have been wild. But the 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 utter vanity of thinking to oneself, I'm I'm from David and I'm so important and I'm so good um, that I can I can do what I want mm-hmm. and it it does not take and the vanity seems to be what causes his downfall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I I don't have strong feelings attached to Absalom to make that resonate but i imagine when the story was being written absalom's name was pretty i mean he was very closely attached to david and mm-hmm. so and he comes before solomon he's the right. he's he would solomon have probably before been solomon. king yeah mm-hmm. if, if not for all of this well and also in the ancient world and i think we still have a <gasps> oh my goodness who's also named peace <laughs> yeah. shlomo <laughs> but also i mean if you're growing five pounds of hair a year that's not coming from you that's coming from from yahweh right that's a gift I mean, Solomon gets a gift and doesn't ask for good looks, doesn't ask for any of that. I wonder if we're supposed to read 
Sol- or Absalom's appearance as a contrast with what Solomon asks for with wisdom. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, that just struck me now. Hmm. But yeah, their names are incredibly similar. Well, and, and just generally speaking, in the ancient world, hair was viewed as like a symbol of like life and virility, mm-hmm. you know. So, I mean, that's part of why Middle Easterners, you know, to this day, right, they grow long beards, and, you know, just because it's like, ah. And I mean, we, we still have flex of that, right? Kind of the the brawny man, you know, um, hairy, chested, you know, all that kind of thing. Uh, there's So there must be something very ancient in our brains in humanity you know of just like yeah you know a lot of hair fabio you know he kind of had fabio (laughs) hair ah yes the biblical fabio the biblical fabio well biblical gandalf and i I mean i think going back to samson right and and we have no indication that absalom is a nazarite but just the emphasis on hair you know well we know he's not a nazarite he cuts uh, it every year well that's true but just kind of life the idea i mean that's i think that's the that's the through line with the nazarites right they're supposed to be life people like dedicated Mm -hmm. only to life so they can't touch dead bodies they can't touch dead grapes they can't cut their hair yeah the whole hair thing may or may not have some bearing on a very intensely strange passage coming up in first corinthians but we'll get there eventually yes (laughs) but it will we shall revisit the hair (laughs) i don't have a whole thought a lot of thoughts about the first chronicles passages the only thing that i was just kind of struck by is like there's just a lot of giants running around and it seems like there were like ancient israelite special forces teams like (laughs) fighting around and killing them I, I imagine there's stories we don't know that would have been worth hearing. Well, and it, you know, and we've kind of been tracking this as we've gone on that like there is this this uh, I don't want to say it's a side story. That's not the right. That's not what I mean. But like part of the the story that I think we tend to skip over because again we have the tendency to want to demythologize things is this whole fighting these you know again not, ne- not from- necessarily saying that. If there was a camera there, it would have seen a nine-foot-tall demon warrior, you know. But something, like there was some discernible, you know, a difference in these in these people and these warriors that prompted them to want to for everybody else to wipe them out. Except for the Philistines, who evidently incorporated them into their hierarchy. But the Philistines were not locals. They had blown in from the Aegean, so they mm-hmm. were not necessarily part of... The wars against the giants that Deuteronomy and Genesis <laughs> refer to. The, those giants had escaped. Well, and so often the giants, you know, when they're encountered, it is a moment of great fear and uncertainty for the people. Well, yeah. You know, understandably so. So when they first get to the promised land and Moses sends the spies, right, they bring back a giant cluster of grapes that takes two men to, one cluster of grapes that takes two men to carry it. Which, you know, oh, wow, that's great. But then there's also giant people in this in this garden land. And so everybody, you know, flips their lids about that. Or with David and Goliath, right? Saul and, and the cavalry, not literally cavalry, but Saul and company are hiding in holes in the ground. Literally like mice or rodents or something while a giant snake. I mean, Goliath is described in a kind of serpent language. We didn't really talk much about that at the time, but like his armor has scales. And I mean, there's there's definitely some parallels being drawn there. Just this enemy, a giant enemy of the people that then David, you know, uh, steps forward and, and defeats. And so I think this just, you think about the Chronicler's community, this little province, you know, on the edge of the empire in a very tenuous situation. I mean, Esther, the book of Esther, you know, certainly is reflecting that like 
official hatred of the Jewish people has a long, awful pedigree in, mm-hmm. in the history of the world. You know, so I mean, the, just this tenuous, you know, they're there by the grace of the Persian emperor, you know, and, and everything that they have can be taken away so quickly. You know, it's like, I think dwelling on the, le- well, not legends in terms of they didn't happen, but like the epic stories, you know, from the past of like, you know, once upon a time, you know, we kicked we tuck us. Out, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Sure. <laughs> and we can do it again, you know. Well, so two thoughts um, as we kind of wrap up. Um, I do want to say that the there is an argument for the truthfulness of the Bible from history. Mm. Um, we look at all these people groups that are named. And aside from the Egyptians, I'm not sure that any of them, any of them in the Old Testament still exist. Syrians. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But for but but most of them no. And the ones that do were big powers that right. that I mean do not today resemble what they were before. And we see this little group in the middle of all this tumult somehow surviving thousands of years of military conquest history around them, through them, over them, including them. Um, it is it is unfathomable that this group of people would still exist. That's miraculous. It's it is miraculous, especially without a homeland. I mean, the Egyptians and the Syrians. I mean, they were conquered and everything else, but they never. I mean, they're still there. They're mm-hmm. still in Egypt, and of course, Israel's back. But you know what I mean. For a long time, it did not have a homeland. Yeah. yeah. Well, lastly, I think it'd be good. So, Psalm fifty-one is one of the psalms yeah. in our set of readings, and I think especially in light of just the the gravity of what David did to Bathsheba, Bathsheba and Uriah and everything else. Um, Psalm 51, of course, is a famous, famous Psalm used a lot in different liturgies and, and things like that. But I would just love just whatever thoughts you have about what we learn about sin, repentance, confession, and perhaps some, some sort of idea of penance hmm. from Psalm 51. Man. I know that's kind of a big question, but take it as you yeah. will. Take it as you we don't have to take, cover all those things. We just, could take this entire time know, and talk about Psalm 51. Um, the uh, the first words I say almost every day come from Psalm 51. Mm. Um, the verse 15. Uh, this is a this is a psalm that's very dear to my heart. Um, it's one that I I mm-hmm. prayed every day during mm-hmm. Lent. Um, I do that regularly. This is this chapter of Scripture is special, and so what we have here is a psalm that David wrote. Um, after he'd been confronted by Nathan about the, the, the adultery with Bathsheba. We have David's heart here. I mean, it's easy to hear the emotion and despair and guilt in David's, in David's words. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is absolutely necessary for repentance is that it's genuine. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things we learn here is that, that, we see David's genuine repentance. We talked even a little bit today about David being forgiven for a great sin. You know, yeah. the, the, the murder and rape of, of who becomes his wife. And eventually the mother of the king that his mm-hmm. line passes continues through. But you don't get to repent and be forgiven when the repentance is not genuine. And David's guilt and his awareness of his guilt is real. And so one of the issues I think we have is we don't take our sin very seriously. Now, most of us are not going to rape and murder, I hope. Uh, but I think that we can tend to not take our sin seriously. And that is that is not work in a system built on repentance. That does not work. 
So the first thing I think we learn here is the need for us to take our sins seriously. And David, David does, but he acknowledges a couple of things here. He says, you know, I would give you sacrifices if that's what you want, but, but that's not the thrust of what you want. That's not the core of what you want. You want a heart that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's repentant, that's, that's, that knows that it's guilty and that it needs you. And we see David understanding something about Yahweh that the Pharisees missed in the New Testament that a lot of people who read the Old Testament don't see. David knew his Old Testament and knew his God enough to know that it was about the heart. It wasn't about the rules were there to help with the heart stuff, not the heart stuff making it easier to follow the rules. And and I think that's a a really important and key part of why we say that David was a man after Yahweh's heart, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we see that, but then there's this, this penance piece. He says, uh, he asks, he talks about himself. Surely I was, I was sinful at birth, uh, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's something we, we talked about already. Um, he asked for cleansing. He asked mm-hmm. for, for forgiveness from Yahweh. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I mean, that's the picture of what repentance to forgiveness is. Um, and then restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. We can wonder when we read Psalm 51 if we can lose the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's not what we're supposed to to take from here. But then he promises what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. He says, "I'm go- if you forgive me, then I will behave this way. And I think that that's another piece of repentance we often miss is that it doesn't stop with the I'm sorry. It's actually a follow through. Yeah. Yeah. A change is required by repentance. Now, the thing about the human heart is you're going to fail at that change over and over and over and over again. And that process of falling down, getting up, trying again by the power of the spirit, failing because of your own fleshiness and again and again and again and again is is what spiritual formation is is about. That's what it looks like. But David gets that here. He knows he can never do this again. This was wrong and should never be repeated. Um, and then this picture of my sacrifice is a broken spirit. I'm a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. I mean, my word, if we can make those the song of our heart, um, I think we would be shocked at how much change could happen in our own heart. Um, I don't know if, if that speaks to all your questions. I love that. I'm yeah. tearing up thinking like as I'm talking about it, this song well, is so impactful. Yeah. And I think it, that, that, that's all good. And thank you for sharing those thoughts. I think that as well, just this going with the follow up, the follow through idea. And I use the word penance, which is not something we use a lot in our context, but you know, is obviously a, an official sacrament in other church contexts. And I think that I think that in the in the the highest sense, the best sense, and the most true to the gospel sense, you know, that David, I mean, it goes without saying that he won't do the thing again, right? And so what he says is, in light of your forgiveness and acceptance, I'm going to teach people, teach sinners your ways. I'm going to sing about your righteousness, you know, declare that. And so I think for us, we often think, well, repentance means, yeah, saying I'm sorry for this thing and then trying not to do that thing again and I'm done. You know, like that's the extent of it. It's like, no, obviously you're going to try not to do the thing. Like that's a foregone conclusion. Like what are you going, like what kind of, I don't want to say what are you going to do kind of positively, but I mean that is I think really the sense of it of like, 
all right, so you failed in this way. So what are you going to contribute now that you weren't before? Not just not doing the sin, but like actually trying to grow in, you know, holiness or obedience or whatever else. You know, reminds me of a, a Dallas Willard line, and I think we've talked about him before on the podcast. He's he's uh, here. He was. He's dead now, but very prominent spiritual formation uh, person, <laughs> author, professor, and one of his lines. And I don't know. I may I may. I may have to say this twice, do two takes, because he says grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Yes. So the idea is we don't earn what we get from God, but that doesn't mean that he's opposed to us trying to actually follow the commands. You know, our success in obedience does not earn us anything with God, but he's not opposed. He does not look down upon our efforts to actually obey you know whether we how, how well we we actually manage to do that or not yeah to be transformed into the likeness of jesus requires a right. great deal of effort and so the, the the what we're getting from david here is not well god's forgiven me and now i'm going to sit on my hands for the rest of my life and let the holy spirit mold me you know, it's like certainly he's letting the holy spirit mold him but he's also going to to do these other things and, and uh, press on you know in his path with the lord Absolutely. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton.